In Acts chapters 18 and 19, we are introduced to a subgroup of the faithful. They are folks that knew and followed the teachings of John the Baptist. But these events occur about 30 years after the ministry of Johnny B. So, how should we understand these folks who don't fit nicely into any of our modern-day boxes? Welcome to episode 59, The Liminal Leftovers of Johnny B. This is Greg Hall, and welcome back to the podcast that gets you thinking about biblical things and maybe things that you've never even considered before. That's what we hope to do today, talking about Acts chapters 18 and 19. And before we dive into the liminal land of the Bible, I just want to remind you that there are still a few states we haven't colored in on the All-America Listener Challenge map. Specifically, it's the upper midsection of the United States, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, and Wyoming. These are four contiguous states where no one has ever downloaded a Rethinking Scripture episode. It's sad, really. This time of year, those places have got to be cold and dark most of the day. I can only imagine what a good dose of rethinking could do. So I'm asking the question, who do you know in those dark and lonely places? And what can you do to get them to download today's episode? Well, let's dive into Acts chapter 18. It begins with Paul going to Corinth. He ended up staying there for about a year and six months. I think oftentimes when we think of Paul's ministry, we just think of him continually hopping from one place to another. But as you pay attention to the timeline, as you read the book, you realize that he hopped and skipped, but then he also settled in places for periods of time, significant periods of time. And I would say his time here in Corinth, that year and a half, it was significant. Because remember, this is the place to which he later sends the letters of First and Second Corinthians. And there were other letters that we know about that we don't have in the Bible. And by the time Paul is writing back to them, they are really in need of some correction. It's the church that eventually abuses the gifts of speaking in tongues and interpretation. So his time spent there here in the beginning of Acts chapter 18 is significant. And there's something that happened to him while he was there that I think influences some of his other writings. We're going to talk about the Bema seat a little bit. The English translations will call it a judgment seat, but the Greek word there is Bema. Or if you've taken any Greek classes, you probably want to say Bema. So the Jews of that area in Corinth end up bringing Paul before the local government officials. It's mentioned in the text that he is brought before the judgment seat. Back in 2015, I got to visit the archaeological site of ancient Corinth. At that site, they've identified the location of this judgment seat. It's the judgment seat where Gallio, the proconsul, would likely have sat. It was likely in a raised platform made of stone where the ruling authorities performed judgment for the law courts. And while I was in Corinth, I got to see the site that they've identified where these events happened. How do they know that? 
because during the Byzantine period, a church was built over the site. That happened a lot in the Byzantine period, and it usually designated places where they thought significant events happened. So Paul went before the Bema seat there in Corinth. The idea of the Bema seat comes up a few other times in the New Testament. So there's this instance in Corinth, but earlier, both Matthew and John in their Gospels include it when they talk about Jesus being on trial before Pilate. We see that in Matthew 27, 19, and then again in John 19, 13. Then, later in the New Testament, Paul writes about a different judgment seat. And remember, when he was in Corinth, Paul was brought before the Bema seat, just as Christ had been in Jerusalem. And then, in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, Paul states, For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. So, the Old Testament introduces the idea of the judgment seat of God back in Isaiah. But then, Paul takes that idea one step further in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Remember, the recipients of the letter, 2 Corinthians, Corinth, that's where Paul was before the Bema seat. The church in Corinth understands exactly what a Bema seat is. They see one every time they visit the Roman Forum there in ancient Corinth. And it's to that church that Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So here, the idea of the Bema seat of God from Romans and Isaiah the prophet is further developed into the Bema seat of Christ. In other words, Jesus will be the one on the seat. And we might get stuck on the point that Jesus will be judging us for our good and bad deeds while done in the body. Most of our New Testament theology demands that we be judged on the basis of faith and faith alone. But that's not the ancient picture of the Bema seat. In Acts 18, when Paul is brought before the Bema, he is charged with persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. And that's talking about the law of Moses, not the Roman law. And what's the response? Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be judge of these matters. So, the Roman Bema seat wasn't concerned with theology. It was concerned with matters of wrong or of vicious crime. The Bema was where actions were judged. That's the ancient picture of the Bema. And Paul uses that well-known icon from the Roman culture to further describe an aspect of Jesus's ministry, the Bema seat of Christ. And some have also made a connection from this idea to the great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. While the Greek word bema is not used there, 
The passage does speak of a time where the dead are judged according to their deeds. That specific phrase is mentioned twice in the passage, judged according to their deeds. So, whatever theology we want to believe the New Testament teaches about how to be included in the family of God, our theology needs to include more than just what we believe. It should also consider people's behavior, their deeds. For it seems that at least there's an aspect that humanity is justified by works and not by faith alone. Isn't that right, James? talk about the third missionary journey. In Acts 18, Paul eventually leaves Corinth and heads back to Jerusalem, then spends some time with the church in Antioch. We're not exactly sure how long he's there. The text just says, and having spent some time there. But after that, he heads back out on the road on what's known as his third missionary journey. And it's during this time that our author, Luke, introduces us to some theologically interesting characters. They are folks stuck in liminal land. And we'll be spending the rest of this episode talking about these folks. Liminal, if you're not familiar with it, is a term that describes an in-between state or a transitional boundary between two places. I often think of the threshold of my front door as liminal space. When I'm in that space, I'm neither fully in my house, nor have I yet arrived outside. I'm in liminal land. The author, Carmen Joy Imes, discusses several examples of liminality in her book, Bearing God's Name. Some of these examples include sociological applications. She suggests that liminality not only exists in doorways, the example I gave, but also airports wedding ceremonies, pregnancies, and colleges, all places where people seemingly are in between two different states. According to Imes, few people actually enjoy liminality. We have an inborn desire to seek order and belonging and predictability, all things that don't exist when we step into liminality. Well, I'm going to suggest that we are introduced in the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of 19, we're introduced to some characters that theologically find themselves in liminal space. It's space between two covenants. The old covenant, even though Christ has died and risen from the grave and ascended to heaven, seems to be done. The new covenant seems to be in full force by this time. But Unique to time and history, what we see in the book of Acts are people caught in this liminal space between the covenants. They are believers in the Old Covenant, in the message of the Old Covenant, in the God of the Old Covenant, and they haven't yet heard the news of the New Covenant. Now, it's unique to time and history because once that generation, that specific generation that experienced the transition between the two, once they passed away, No other generation had these same characteristics. 
There were people alive that Paul met on his missionary journeys that were saved through faith in the Old Covenant. And Paul's job was to introduce them or catch them up on the news of what God's been doing. And in our two chapters today, we run into some very interesting characters that fit exactly into this description. The first guy is named Apollos, and he is in Ephesus at the end of chapter 18. It's before Paul arrives there. That happens in chapter 19. And Apollos is described as an Alexandrian by birth. So he was born in Egypt. He's further described as an eloquent man, and he was mighty in the scriptures. And that means the Old Testament. Remember, New Testament hasn't been written yet. And it's here where I think we, in our modern-day judgment seats, we have to create a new category for this guy because of the way that he's described. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit, and he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Well, <laughs> well, that just prompts the question, because I know the rest of this story. What things was he teaching accurately concerning Jesus? Because he's further described as being only acquainted with the baptism of John. That's John the Baptist, Johnny B., from the beginning of the Gospels, who got his head cut off before Jesus really got ramped up and going in his ministry. Well, this guy Apollos, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, was still teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, and he was speaking out boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus. So we've got this guy who knows his way around the Old Testament really well. He speaks well. He's even teaching about Jesus well. But he's only familiar with Johnny B. So you might have lost track of your timeline a little as we've been reading through Acts. And while there is some ambiguity as to exactly what year this story is happening, most scholars agree that it's likely about 30 years after the ministry of John the Baptist. This is 30 years later. And this guy, Apollos, is preaching about Jesus, but he only knows what John the Baptist taught him about Jesus. So that just prompts me, as a Bible student, to ask the question, what exactly does Apollos know about Jesus if he's only acquainted with what John the Baptist taught about him? Well, to get closer to that answer, we need to go back to the beginning of the Gospels to see what John the Baptist was saying about Jesus during John's ministry. And it's right there in the Gospels that we find out that Johnny B. was telling people the following things. First, we can find all this information in Matthew chapter 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, John 1. Okay, so we're heading back to the beginning of those Gospels. One of the things that John the Baptist was preaching and teaching was repentance. Not for any reason, but because the kingdom of heaven had come near. And people were confessing their sins and being baptized. And the text says, being forgiven of their sins. So these are not theologically nebulous people going through this baptism. The text specifically says that they are forgiven. Their sins are being forgiven through this act of repentance and aligning with John the Baptist's message. What else do we know? Well, we know that the Pharisees and Sadducees were largely not a part of this new movement. 
But others outside the nation of Israel, like Apollos, would be invited into the movement. Johnny B. said that people should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, your actions should square up with what you say you believe, and that this fruit-bearing will change the way of life for people. People like who? Well, tax collectors were asking questions, and soldiers were asking questions about what should they do now. All people who believed that the Messiah was coming, and they wanted to get ready for him. Over and over, Johnny B. admitted that he wasn't the Messiah. And after Jesus' baptism, he identified that Jesus was that one. He said, the one coming after me will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That guy is Jesus, and he is God's beloved son. That's a quick summary of what John the Baptist's message was. So, while we can't say exactly what information Apollos received from Johnny B., we do know that he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he had only gotten as far as John's baptism. So, evidently, he was with John in the wilderness for a while, heard him teach about Jesus being the Messiah, accepted that message, and then went on his way. And he taught about Jesus in that way, with that information, for 30 years. But evidently, he hadn't heard about how that whole Jesus story ended. So maybe he didn't know about the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension events. So what happened? The text says that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. (laughs) He got the update, in other words. They caught him up on the events. And it was then that his message about Jesus was complete. Now remember, he was already a believer. He was just a late adopter. It took him a while to get the news. And in our day and age, this seems crazy. It seems crazy that someone could go that long without hearing the rest of the story. But that was a different time. News did not travel the way it does now. And I think Luke is including stories like this one of Apollos. Because he knew there were more people out there, just like Apollos, that were needing to hear the rest of the story. How do I know that? Because of the group that Luke introduces us to at the beginning of the next chapter. After getting the update, Apollos was sent off to Corinth, where Paul had just been. And then Paul arrives in Ephesus, where Apollos was just at. And when Paul gets there, Luke tells us about a very strange group of disciples that he discovers. There were about 12 of them. And who were they disciples of? It turns out it's another example of some folks that were still following John the Baptist's teaching nearly 30 years after he taught it. This band of 12 disciples is caught in liminal land. And I've got to believe just from the two examples that Luke is giving us in these two chapters, they had to be a small sample of a larger group that existed. And I know what you're thinking. 
<laughs> this is ridiculous. There is no way that there are this many true believers 30 years after the fact that still haven't heard about Jesus yet. And before you come to any conclusions, I have to tell the story of a man that died in 2014. He was Japanese. I'm not sure exactly how to say his name, but I believe it's Onoda Hiro. He was born March 19th, 1922, and he was in the Imperial Japanese Army Intelligence. He was an officer who fought in World War II. But in August of 1945, he did not surrender at the war's end. In fact, after the war ended, this man spent 29 years hiding in the Philippines until his former commander traveled from Japan to formally relieve him of duty. When did this happen? In 1974. And you might say, how could that even happen? Well, initially, at the conclusion of the war, he was a Japanese holdout living up in the mountains in the Philippines. And he was with three fellow soldiers. So what they used to do is they used to drop leaflets or pass out leaflets just saying, hey, Japan has surrendered, the war's over. The first time they saw one of these leaflets was in October of 1945, shortly after the war was over. Well, this group of guys up in the mountains studied the leaflet closely to determine whether it was genuine, and they decided it wasn't. One by one, people started dying. A couple of them got shot. And in 1972, Onoda found himself alone. And two years after that, eventually somebody found him in the mountains, agreed to bring his commanding officer out to his location. And so on March 9th, 1974, Onoda was properly relieved of duty, and he surrendered. Interestingly, he turned over his sword, a functioning rifle with 500 rounds of ammunition and several hand grenades as well as the dagger his mother had given him in 1944 to kill himself if he was ever captured. So as we travel back to Acts chapter 19 and consider a group of 12 who seemingly are still running on the premises taught to them by John the Baptist 30 years prior, all of a sudden it doesn't seem as crazy as it once did. this Japanese holdout was living in liminal land for 29 years. I mean, the war was over, and yet he was acting as if it hadn't ended yet. And that situation may be similar to what's happening here in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Even though it's 30 years later, we're still in some liminal land between two covenants. The new covenant is definitely instituted. But is the Old Covenant really over at this point? Well, you still have a temple that God has allowed to stay operational until 70 AD. There's still a temple operating under the Old Covenant rules. And that, for a long time, was just kind of a mystery to me. Why would it be that God would let the temple in Jerusalem function, even dysfunctionally function, until 70 AD? Well, I think we get our answer to that question here in Acts 18 and 19. You still have pockets of people, even 30 years later, that haven't gotten the update about who Jesus is and how he has fulfilled the Old Covenant requirements. So, 
With that story about the Japanese holdouts on board, I think I can more easily imagine what might have happened with these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. They probably had a small group of people they came in contact with, and they may not have heard whatever happened to Johnny B, or that Messiah character he used to talk about. Maybe they even got some gospel tracts dropped into their camp, and after close examination, determined they weren't trustworthy. I don't know their whole story, but I do know that Johnny B had a significant ministry for a few years, and he would have come in contact with thousands of people that were visiting Jerusalem for the festivals. Those people would have listened to John's message, gotten baptized, and eventually left to return home. There would have been small pockets of Johnny B disciples everywhere, and Paul would want to try and find them all either through his own travels or through Luke's telling of the story in the book of Acts. Now, if you look around, commentators don't know what to do with these 12 guys. They want to say they were disciples, but not true believers in God. And they want to say that they came to an initial faith that day Paul shared the name of Jesus with them. But that simply was not the case. These guys had a true and saving faith. They have been faithfully following the last of the Old Testament prophets' teachings for decades. That's what Johnny B. was. And in this weird liminal space between the two covenants, they would have still been considered faithful by God. Remember, when they got baptized by John the Baptist, the text tells us that their sins were forgiven. They were people of faith, and it was a true faith. And don't let anybody talk you out of that fact. Because the conclusion that many people come to is that they couldn't be true believers if they had never heard that there is a Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's the way the text reads. But there's a good explanation for this confusion. And before we get into that explanation, let me just read uh, the text directly so we're all on the same page. Acts 19 verse 1 says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were, in all, about 12 men. So how could it be that there could be a group of true believers that didn't even know that the Holy Spirit existed? Well, for some help on this, I'd like to go to a journal article entitled Harmony with God, Part 3 of 3. The title doesn't really help help you understand what he's talking about. It's an article written by Zane Hodges back in 2003. And part of the article is specifically on this question that we're talking about. Hodges says this, We can hardly find a better summary of the ministry of John the Baptist than the one Paul gives in Acts 19.4. There, he's addressing some disciples who seemed to lack the gift of the Spirit. 
His question to them had been, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Acts 19.2 To this question, the disciples replied, We have not so much as heard if the Holy Spirit is here. The words, is here, translate a Greek phrase that can be rendered simply, is. He says, from this fact, many have drawn the conclusion that these disciples of John the Baptist had no knowledge of the third person of the Trinity. For example, they did not know he existed. But Hodges says this is highly improbable, since John the Baptist, whose disciples they were, preached about the Holy Spirit. But a clue, he says, to the real meaning of the text, we find that in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 39. In that passage, John explains a statement made by our Lord by saying, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But, he says, The literal rending of that verse would be, the Spirit was not yet. Both in Acts 19.4 and John 7.39, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is described by a simple to-be verb. Since the author of the fourth gospel was almost certainly originally a disciple of the Baptist, most people think he's the unnamed disciple in John 1.35-40, Hodges thinks, we probably have here an expression used among the disciples of the Baptist. To say that the Holy Spirit is not yet, or is, was to state that he had not yet come or had come. And this point alone makes real sense of Acts 19.2. So breaking away from the Hodges article, this is just one more reminder that the theological landscape of first-century Christianity was not the same as it is now. There was a liminal period of time between the Old and New Covenants, where believing was just different than it is now. At that time, there were people that had first entered into faith through the witness of the Old Testament, or in today's examples, through the preaching of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. These folks would have had a true and saving faith. At John's baptism, their sins were forgiven. And that was true even with the lack of exposure to the person of Jesus. But when they were eventually exposed to his story, they accepted it gladly, got their information upgrade, and continued on in the same faith relationship they previously enjoyed. Well, that's all the Johnny B. disciples I have to talk about for today. We are making good progress through this book of Acts, but we've got a few more chapters to go until we reach the end. So thanks for sticking with it. In the next episode, Paul continues on his third missionary journey and eventually makes his way back to Jerusalem for the last time. There will be a lot to cover, so stay tuned. And in the meantime... Wow, is it the holiday season already? You know, the best gift you could give to me this year is to rate, review, or possibly just recommend to one of your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.